We're beginning our third and final part of this good and beautiful series that we've been in for some time. And so today begins nine weeks uh, leading up to Christ the King Sunday and then Advent. And so we've moved from talking about the good and beautiful God to the good and beautiful life. And this morning we want to begin talking about the good and beautiful community. So if the first two books in the series, one of the ways you could understand them would to be about the first part of the great commandment, loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What is that God like, the good and beautiful God that we are to love with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? What does that mean in our lives? If the first two books were about that, then this last book is about the second part, loving our neighbor as ourselves. What does it mean for us to be a good and beautiful community committed to loving our neighbor as ourselves? Now, here's a dimension to this that's really important. We just cannot miss this. And it's this, it's that these words of Jesus have first and foremost to do with the community of people, those who understand themselves to be the people of God. And so when Jesus is speaking and he's saying, love your neighbor as yourself, He's not saying, first and foremost, Mitch, Jean, Helen, Lisa, Phil, Lois, Amy, Valley. Sorry if I don't name everybody. He's not talking to JR. He's not talking to you individually, first and foremost. Jesus isn't speaking to individual responsibility, but to corporate identity. In terms of how people in Jesus' day understood themselves, us and we always came before I and me. That's just how people thought. That's what was going through their minds. And still today, if we're being honest, if we're really thinking about it, the whole idea of Christian baptism carries with it the, the idea that we are dying to ourselves as we're being incorporated into the body of Christ, the church. This is what Christian baptism is meant to be and to do and to symbolize and to mean. And it's from that place, from our incorporation into the body of Christ, that we then derive our whole identity. Who you are first and foremost is not who you decide for yourself to be. For you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, who we are first and foremost is the body, the church, the community that we've been incorporated into. And that's the sort of foundational understanding that we need to have in place all through this final part of the series, and it's powerfully reinforced by our text this morning, which is, comes from 1 Peter. Let me read these verses to us. 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 9 and 10. Peter says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So I want to delve more deeply into the specifics of this text here in a moment, but I want to pause to say that this is what Jim Smith, the author of the book, has in mind as he begins talking about the church 
as a peculiar community, right? So many of you have the book, and you would know, hopefully, the first chapter talks about this idea of the church as a peculiar community. For those of you who don't, we'll walk through it a little bit. He says that he starts out and he says this, speaking for himself, that I need to be reminded that as a follower of Jesus, I am peculiar in the best sense of that word. Peculiar, that is, to the world around me that does not live by the teaching of Jesus. Like That should make us a little odd and strange in a world that's not really thinking about how to live out Jesus' teaching. So I want you to think for a moment about how and why Jesus would have been seen as peculiar in his day. Can I ask you just to name a few things? When you think about Jesus in your mind, what stands out to you as something that would have made him peculiar in his day? What's that? Yeah, he hung around with, quote-unquote, all the wrong people. That was a little peculiar, especially as, like, a religious leader, a rabbi. What else made him peculiar, do you think? The way he dressed? Okay. Not very ornate. Very simple. Yep, for sure. What else? Loved everyone. Like, that's always peculiar, right? Who loves everybody? <laughs> right? Well, we could probably go on and on, but there's and, and many things that would come to mind that would make Jesus peculiar. And I want to say this morning that in a similar fashion, the church is meant to be a peculiar community, embodying and extending those same things. So whatever might come to mind as you think about Jesus and the sort of like peculiarity he represented in his day and time, I just want us to know, first and foremost, like, that the church is meant to embody and extend those same kinds of things. So I want to read uh, just a few lines from something that's really old. It's called the Epistle to Diognetus, and it goes back to uh, like 130 AD, like this very early second, maybe third century. No one knows for sure, but it's a sort of an explanation of Christian peculiarity that dates back all that way. So I just want to hear, I want us to hear this morning some of these words that were written. The writer writes that the difference between Christians and the rest of mankind isn't a matter of nationality or language or customs. Christians don't live in separate cities of their own, speak any special dialect, or practice any eccentric way of life. They pass their lives in whatever township, Greek or foreign, each man's lot has determined and conform to the ordinary local uh, usage in their clothing and diet and other habits. Nevertheless, this author says, the organization of their community does exhibit some features that are remarkable or even surprising, or we might say peculiar. For instance, though that they are residents at home in their own countries, their behavior is more like transients. Though destiny has placed them here in the flesh, they don't live after the flesh. Their days are passed on earth, but their citizenship is above in the heavens. They obey the prescribed laws, but in their own private lives, they transcend the laws. They show love to all men and women, we would say today. And all men persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned, yet by suffering death, they are quickened into life. 
They are poor, yet making many rich, lacking all things, yet having all things in abundance. They repay insults with blessings and abuse with courtesy. For the good they do, they suffer stripes as evildoers. To sum up all in one word, what the soul is in the body, Christians are in the world. The soul is dispersed through all the members of the body, and Christians are scattered through all the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, yet is not of the body, and Christians dwell in the world, yet are not of the world. Isn't that such a beautiful and compelling description of the peculiarity of the Christian community? That line, what the soul is in the body, Christians are in the world. Or what if we were to make it a little bit more personal and contextual for us and say this, what the soul is in the body, first church of the resurrection is called to be in and for the city of Canton. In this first chapter, Jim Smith has this to say. It takes courage to live like our peculiar God, to love and forgive the unlovely and the unforgivable. The only way we will ever find this courage is when we discover that we are a community of people who are rooted in another world. That's the only place that that kind of courage comes from, is to know this isn't our primary place of belonging. We're here, we love it, we care for it, but this ultimately is right now not our home, though it will be one day when God makes all things new. And that's why we can live with courage. And I, If I could just rehearse and celebrate for a moment some of the Christian peculiarities of our church. I believe that our church's decision to remain in a difficult and struggling downtown environment is a glorious peculiarity. I think other people look at that and go, mm. as Amy and I have the opportunity to share our church's story with other people, this church's decision to donate the building to help found a highly experimental ministry always strikes other people as wondrously peculiar when we get to share that story with people. And similarly, when we share with people that this historic church was willing to embrace a style of leadership that it had never known in calling Amy and I to lead as co-pastors, this too strikes people as quite peculiar. And of course, there's many other examples that could be added. You all would know those. But I mention these merely to underscore some of the ways in which our church has courageously modeled its faith in the other world of God's kingdom. And I wonder if we might also then ask, what may be the next courageous act of peculiarity that God is inviting us into? I have no idea, but I'm led to wonder that question. All right, let's go back to 1 Peter 2 and see if we can explore a little bit more deeply what it means for us to function as the soul of the world, okay? The first thing that we read is that we are a chosen people, Peter says. You are a chosen people. In Christian history, for a variety of reasons, there arose a debate 
about whether or not all those who might be saved have been pre-chosen by God, right? Probably all of us have come across this at one point or another. And that discussion is complex and multi-layered. But at least in terms of how it's commonly understood, I want to suggest to you that it's based on a faulty understanding of how God's choosing actually works in the Bible, okay? So I want you to think for a moment about who, all these different episodes of God choosing. Adam and Eve, first people. God chooses Noah. God chooses Abraham, Moses, David, Nehemiah and Ezra, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Esther, Ruth, Mary, John the Baptist, the 12 disciples, Paul, the list goes on. And listen, in each and every case, God's choosing them never has anything to do with their salvation. It has everything to do with their service. That's how God's choosing works in the Bible. They are special, they are set apart, not because God chooses them over others, but because God chooses them for the sake of others. That's how God's choosing works. God chooses people and says, I choose you to be with me, to go for me, for the sake of other people. To the Israelites, God says, I've chosen you to be a light to the nations. And this is not a choosing unto privilege, it's a choosing unto responsibility. I wonder if you've ever been chosen for anything unexpected, some unexpected responsibility. Can you think about that? Probably we all have at one point or another. And so we know that we're not always in control of who's choosing us for what kind of responsibility, but we are always in control of how we respond to that choosing. We can refuse it, nice of you to choose me, no thank you. We can begrudge it, all right, fine. Or we can welcome it. We can welcome being chosen for something. And that's the same control that each of us has as we stand before God who invites us to receive his invitation to bear responsibility to join him in his mission in the world. We have that same option. We can refuse it when God invites us. No thanks, God. I've got my own plans. I've got my own priorities. I've got my own things to be about. You're on your own. <laughs> we can begrudge it. Well, <laughs> we might say, I guess you're God. I'm not. And I really don't want to get on your bad side. So I guess I'll say yes and just hope that it's never too much of an inconvenience. Maybe that's a space with so all of us are inclined to live at some point. Or we can welcome it. When God chooses us, we could, our response could be, what? <laughs> you want me to be a part of what you're doing in the world? Yes! Whatever it means, wherever it takes me, whatever it costs, I'm in. Now, listen. <laughs> that may not, like, maybe that is our response, right? Maybe it is. And then sometimes you kind of figure out what all that entails and go, woo, this is a bit of a doozy. <laughs> I didn't know exactly what I was signing up for. But those are the different ways that we can respond to God's invitation. And God's choosing has nothing to do with who comes to know his saving grace. That's something else entirely. 
who comes to know it and who doesn't. Our response, however, has everything to do with whether or not we come to experience the realities of salvation made possible in and through Jesus. Like, that's actually in our hands. And God says, do you want to know the kind of salvific life that I've invited you into? What is being chosen like this make us? What does it make us? Peter says it makes us a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. We already talked about this. I know many of you tuned in for Amy's ordination this week when she was ordained as a deacon as a transitional step towards her being ordained as a priest, as I am, an Anglican priest. And what is a priest? I'm not sure everyone quite understands this. In its basic form, a priest is one who understands their life as a living sacrifice to God on behalf of others. That's it. A priest is someone who understands that their life is a living sacrifice to God on behalf of others. And so for Amy and I to be priests isn't about attaining some sort of special standing with God. Rather, it's the reception of a calling to offer our lives as living sacrifices to God on behalf of this community. That's what it means for us to be priests. And so, too, we as a church, we as the people of God, every single one of us, are meant to understand ourselves as carrying a calling to offer our lives as a community and as individuals, as a living sacrifice to God on behalf of the people and place in which we find ourselves. This is all of our callings. Priests represent... God to others and represent others before God. Uh, the pastor of the church where we did the ordination, his name was Cliff Warner, and when he was giving his sermon, maybe some of you will remember this, he talked about in the Old Testament, priests would wear this thing called an ephod, ephod. I don't exactly remember how he uh, talked about it, but then part of their dress that they would have either sewn into the pocket um, of their breastplate or a breastplate by itself, these 12 jewels, 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And so whenever a priest went into the temple to sacrifice and pray and worship, the priest was literally carrying a reminder of the 12 tribes of Israel on his heart and remembering, this is the only reason I stand before the Lord is to represent these people, the people of God to the Lord, and represent the Lord to this community of people. So friends, each of you is chosen for the same task, each and every one of us. As God's priesthood, you represent God among the people that you encounter in all the places that you travel. You're all priests. And as you come before the Lord, you represent all of the people and places that you come from before the Lord. So just think for a moment. Your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, all those you love, all those you consider friends. If you are a Christian today, God calls you a member of the royal priesthood. And when you come before the Lord, you bring all of those people into his presence. Do you understand what a holy and glorious responsibility we have as God's royal priesthood? But why? Why are we to carry this kind of peculiar identity and ministry in the world? And if I may, I want to preface the answer to that question with another question. And the question is this, how have you understood your involvement in this thing that we call church? 
Can I just ask you to call that to mind for a moment? How have you understood your involvement in this thing that we call church? There's absolutely no need whatsoever to think about that question, the categories of right or wrong. I simply want us to, in all the honesty of our own hearts, know what our answers to that question are and ask, of all the things that I could give my time, my energy, and my resources to, why the church? I mean, there's choices, man. (laughs) Why the church? And now hold the responses that you have in contrast to what Peter says. He says the reason is, in his mind, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Because once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In Peter's mind, there is absolutely, hands down, no question about it, no better news than this. Where once there was darkness concerning our understanding of God and his purposes in the world, in Jesus, all of that is now completely in the light. Where once people were confined into groupings and communities based on earthly divisions, through Jesus, a new humanity, the people of God, has been made possible. Where once people lived cut off from God's mercy, in Jesus, the unlimited mercy of God has been made freely available to anyone who would receive it. For Peter, the whole notion of living as God's peculiar people in the world is the only logical response to what God has done and what God is doing. Church for Peter isn't a religious facet of our lives that we tack on or make space for based on our social norms or what we get out of it or just our own lifestyle choice. I want to be a church kind of person. Peter would know nothing about that. It's the new reality brought into existence through Jesus that we've been invited into and which serves as the ultimate basis of our identity and that which gives shape to the rest of our lives. In short, there is no greater fundamental reality in Peter's mind than this thing called church, this peculiar community that's been made possible in Jesus. As I was um, preparing this sermon, just as we wrap up, the Lord brought back to mind something that I had written uh, in response to one of the essay questions uh, that the search team asked when we were candidating as pastors. The question was this, what are your views on the purpose of the local church? And here's part of how I answered that question. I said, I think local churches are beachheads of the kingdom of God. You all know what beachheads are? Things that go before, establish something so that more can kind of come in. That local churches are beachheads of the kingdom of God. They're communities of people living under the lordship of Christ, seeking to embody the good news of God's coming kingdom in the power of the Holy Spirit for the sake of the people and places surrounding them. That's what a local church is. And I also quoted this famous uh, archbishop, Anglican archbishop, his name was William Temple, who said this, that the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. 
The church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. That is a striking peculiarity about the church, is it not? We don't exist for us, we exist for others. That, I think, is actually the most appropriate way both to end this sermon and to begin this series on what it means to be the good and beautiful community of God 